Do you ever sit in your day job or doing your hobby and fantasize about making a name for yourself, confronting evil, changing the world? Well, today I'm going to talk to someone who's gone from a dull desk job in Leicester and a bit of an internet hobby to breaking some of the biggest stories and exposing some of the worst crimes of recent times. This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. So I'm joined by Elliot Higgins, who's written a book, We Are Bellingcat. I have to say, Elliot, I've rarely read a book which has opened my eyes more completely to something I knew very little about. I'm looking forward so much to talking to you about it. But first of all, how are you? I'm great, thanks. And how's lockdown treating you? It's not been bad. I mean, fortunately, with Bellingcat, we all tend to work from home anyway, so it's not been too much of a shock to the system. Well, let's start the story where you started in the book, which is how many years are we talking about? 10 years ago or so, you're in your job in Leicester. You've always been a bit of an enthusiast for computers and the internet. And then you start to get slightly obsessed, obsessed by, I think, what's going on in Syria. Initially, it was Libya. I was was kind of online a lot, kind of arguing with people on the internet about what was going on with the Arab Spring, as some people do. And there were videos being shared from the conflict in Libya that people were always arguing over, saying, how do we know this is real? How do we know this isn't a fake or they're lying? And I realized you could look at satellite imagery of those locations and compare that satellite imagery to what's visible in these videos and photographs and confirm where it was filmed. And then eventually that led me to launching a blog in the start of 2012 called the Brown Moses blog, named after a Frank Zappa song, quite randomly, really. Just thinking I can, just as a hobby for a pastime, I can kind of look at some of these videos coming from Syria as well and see what I can figure out about them. And it turned out that I kind of stumbled across this kind of new way of using this kind of social media, user-generated content to understand conflict. So was there anything, Elliot, in your past that would have given any clue that you were going to suddenly throw yourself in such incredible depths into these questions of what was going on in Libya and in Syria? Did you kind of play detectives when you were a kid? I kind of always... I mean, I like watching Columbo and stuff like that when it comes to being a detective, but um, (laughs) it was never really in my mind that I would do that kind of thing. I think it partly came from you know the fact that my kind of teenage years were bookended by the kind of Gulf War and then the 2003 invasion of Iraq. And that, I think, kind of coloured my understanding of the world and my perception of it. So I was reading a lot of kind of quite leftist literature, like a lot of Noam Chomsky and that kind of stuff. And then obviously 9-11 was a huge event as well in those years for me. So that kind of coloured my perspective quite a bit of, you know, how the world worked. But it wasn't really until 2011 when I was spending like quite a lot of time on the internet when I started just getting really engaged with the kind of discussions around Libya and started getting a bit frustrated for two reasons. One, that there was a lot of this content being shared from these conflict zones that was being ignored, even though it seemed to be quite valuable to me if you actually looked at it carefully. And you also often saw journalists on the ground who would kind of tweet something out that seemed interesting. And then they just wouldn't write about it. And one thing that really stood out to me with Libya was a place called Tawerga, which was just south of this rebel-held area called Misrata. And journalists would be driving past that on the way to Gaddafi's hometown. And it was off the road, so they could see it in the distance. But they, one journalist would like to eat, oh, they're firing, the rebels are firing artillery into this town. And then a few hours later, another journalist would say, the town's on fire. But these kind of individual bits of information weren't being kind of brought together 
to show what was actually happening in that town, which was that it was basically being ethnically cleansed by the rebels. And it kind of made me realize there were interesting stories out there that even journalists on the grounds weren't picking up because they had this kind of very you know, individual kind of viewpoint of what was going on. But using the internet and the information being shared, you can have this kind of macro view of a conflict and then kind of drill down on certain areas. And that's kind of what we do a lot now with Balancat. It's kind of having this macro view using the internet of these conflict zones or situations and then being able to drill down very precisely to certain moments using user-generated content. So the whole book, it seems to me, intertwines these two key things. One is the technology, the methodology, and you explain you know, very carefully, meticulously, the way in which you use different types of methods and sometimes kind of generate new types of ways of analyzing content, online content. But the other is this really strong ethical dimension to what you're doing. And you talked about you know, reading leftist books, talked about Noam Chomsky. We actually had Noam Chomsky on, on this podcast a few months ago earlier, and he had a very fierce dog in the background. So with the combination of his fierce ideological views and his fierce dog, worth listening to, those of you who want to go back to previous editions of Bridges. But are you driven by a kind of ideological perspective, or is it more, and this is what I felt reading the book, that it's really the truth that is the absolute thing for you, that you'll expose people of whatever their political persuasions if they are not telling the truth. Yeah, I would say I'm from a quite a personally a kind of leftist, liberal, kind of social democrat persuasion. But when it comes to the work of Bellingcat, I mean, whatever the issue, we're just looking for the truth of what happened, even if it paints people who I'd normally support in a bad light. Because if we're finding stuff that paints those people in a bad light, I have to question my own support of those kind of people, if you see what I mean. So a lot of our work is really about looking for incidents where there's, you know, some element of kind of you know, justice and accountability that can be kind of achieved from it. So on a whole range of topics, we're kind of, when we're working on them, we're kind of asking, it's not just about doing an interesting investigation, but saying, okay, what can we do with that investigation once we've actually done it? So it's a remarkable story. You go from this hobby that you're undertaking, blogs that you're writing at your kitchen table, you start to connect to a community of people. You're incredibly generous in the book, Elliot, about the other people that you work with, some of whom are working within hostile environments where their own life and freedom is at risk. And for many years, you're doing this on a shoestring. And a, a couple of points in the book, you're talking about whether or not you can carry it on. And then gradually, you've grown it, you've started to bring in more funding, you've started to bring in employees. Just tell us now what the scale of Bellingcat is now. So we've gone over the last couple of years from being a kind of UK limited that I was kind of doing all the admin work for. I had just spreadsheets of invoices and stuff like that. Uh, finally getting a business director, we've built a business team and we've gone from five or six full-time staff members to about 20 now. So that includes researchers, a kind of fundraising team, a business team and editors. And, you know, we're, we've professionalized quite a bit. We're also now a fully registered charity in the Netherlands. And that's partly because we wanted to be as transparent as we reasonably could be about our funding sources and how we operate and have a governance structure where I was like the king of Ballincat. We have like a supervisory board who makes sure that I'm doing the job I'm supposed to be doing and that we have standards that are written down. So over the last couple of years, we've really gone from almost an amateur blog type organization to something that's kind of much more professional. But you'll never lose, will you, Elliot, the reliance on amateurs, because that's where it all started from. You were an amateur sleuth exposing truth and lies in Libya and Syria. And you relied just as much today, I guess, on people sitting in their front rooms, painstakingly going through photographs and, and social media. There, there'd always be 
an alliance here, won't there, between the people you're able to employ, the professionals, and also journalists that don't work for you, but just mainstream journalists, and this huge community of truth seekers. Yeah, and it's something that's kind of arisen around kind of my work in Ballincat that we have this online community that often engages with some of the investigations we're doing. Like recently, we've been asking people to find videos from the violence of January 6th in Washington. We've also done things in the past like the Europol Trace and Object Stop Child Abuse campaign, where Europol asked the public to identify objects they're taken from abuse imagery in a hope to identify where these photographs were taken. And with that one, we took those images and we amplified them to our kind of social media audience. And that resulted in a lot of these objects being identified. There's been children rescued because of it, suspects arrested. So using that kind of audience as almost like a human search engine has been very good for us. And we also do a lot of collaboration with a whole range of different groups. One thing that surprised me when I first kind of started blogging is how often people in different kind of communities, like, you know, the arms control community and the kind of NGO human rights community often weren't talking to each other, which I found bizarre. So I was always very much trying to connect people and then kind of build kind of collaborative groups around doing investigations. And that's something that's proven to be extremely successful. Yeah, that's one of the charms of the book is that sense of you in the early days kind of slightly blundering around and being surprised when suddenly you're asked to go and speak at an international event or that you're contacted by people who are great experts in their field. And I think sometimes, isn't it, being a novice, being an outsider enables you to make connections and see possibilities that people who've been in a world all their professional lives don't see. I think as well, the thing with online open source investigation, it's kind of so new that I don't think any field kind of feels it has particular ownership of it. And it's really become its own thing. So you always get kind of different kinds of people approaching you wondering if you can use online open source investigation to assist with their work. So for example, we've done a lot lot of work with NGOs that are interested in human rights, but now we're being approached by people who work on conservation issues. And that's a kind of virgin territory for the kind of open source investigation. And we've done some work there already, and it's proving to be like a really useful resource for the people who are working on these conservation issues. So I think what's so great about it as well, it's not just about these big, huge international stories like exposing Russian spies, but it can be used on quite a local and personal level as well. One of my favorite investigations I did last year was we helped recover a stolen dog, but we used a technique there that basically deciphered number plates that were too blurry to read in an image that we had used previously to identify assassins and murderers, but we're using it this time to reunite a stolen dog with its family. And it's a small thing, but it shows you that you can use these kind of techniques for a whole range of different levels of stuff. And also, often when you're dealing with kind of war crimes in Syria, you don't really see an impact of your work in the short term. But, you know, it's nice occasionally to help a family get reunited with their dog. I want to explore, Elliot, two or three of the case studies in the book, because I think each one illustrates something slightly different about your work. So I want to start with the story of the Malaysian Airlines flight that was shot down by Ukrainian separatists, rebels. What interested me in that story and what I'd like you to describe, Elliot, is is the kind of sense of it being like an onion that you were peeling, that you were you were starting with the question, well, who shot down this plane? But you weren't satisfied with finding the answer to that. You then wanted to know, well, where had the missile launcher come from? You then wanted to know who were the commanding officers of the Russian brigade which made that missile launcher available to the Ukrainians and where did they fit in the overall hierarchy so you you got deeper and deeper as you went along didn't you 
Yeah, it was an interesting investigation because Bellingcat had launched on July 14th, 2014, and three days later, MH17 was shot down. Before then, I was very much focused on Syria, but suddenly there was this huge event which was quite well documented. It was quite different as well from the context of like social media use in Syria because it was much more freer in eastern Ukraine for people to post stuff online. So there's a vast amount of information rather than with Syria where you have an incident and you're lucky to get like five videos from it and a few social media posts. Instead, you basically have the entire Ukrainian language internet to search through for information on this. And the first thing we, I started looking at and then eventually a kind of informal team that kind of formed around it was the route of the missile launcher because there were videos and photographs published online that showed a book missile launcher on a low loader truck with a white cabin. And the first thing we did was geolocate, which is using satellite imagery and other reference material to figure out exactly where something was filmed or photographed these images and because some of them were taken at times of days where there was a strong shadow you could actually use once you had the precise location of the camera you could get the estimated time it was taken and that created a route of this missile launcher traveling through separatist held territory towards a site that a number of other sources online including social media posts by locals said there had been a missile launch from and this was all quite early and we also had a photograph that showed the smoke trail from what was believed to be the missile. And when we geolocated that and looked at the direction the smoke was coming from, it was exactly the same field. And then there was satellite imagery published that showed the same field. Before July 17th, it was just a normal field. And then afterwards, a corner of it had been plowed out and a local farmer said there had been a fire there. So we started you know, with something quite simple, like where were these photographs taken? But just from there, all these kind of other questions started coming up and all these other leads we could explore. Then, as we were doing this, people on Twitter were finding other videos of book missile launchers, some inside Russia, a couple of weeks before MH17 was shot down. So we looked at those videos and discovered that it was coming from the 53rd Air Defense Brigade in Kursk, and it was this big movement of missile launchers and support vehicles to the border with Russia and Ukraine. And we discovered one of those missile launchers by comparing damage and marks on the side of it matched to the missile launcher that was seen in Ukraine. So we had basically the missile launcher coming from the 53rd Air Defense Brigade a few weeks earlier and then appearing in Ukraine on July 17th, 2014, heading towards the launch site. Then we were able to use the social media profiles of the soldiers to start establishing everyone who was inside this convoy in Russia and getting their names and who they were and all kinds of personal details because they posted them on the internet. And it just kind of kept going from there. We just found more and more information. But it became very clear that this was a Russian missile launcher that had been sent over and would been used by the separatists as air defense. And it was crewed by a Russian crew and it was a Russian missile launcher. So it's kind of part of Russia's ongoing secret war in Ukraine. It's a fascinating story, Elliot. Do you, do you find that when you deal with mainstream journalists that they're kind of envious of the way in which you can do this? You can pursue lead after lead after lead going deeper and deeper? Because one of the things that's happened to journalism over the last kind of 30 years has been the decline of investigative work because there's simply no resource for it. Tell us about your relationship with you know, full-time journalists. Are they allies or are they ever kind of jealous of the way in which you're able to do things which they're often really not resourced or able to do? I think apart from a few contrarian kind of weekend columnists, I mean, generally we have a very positive response from journalists. Uh, they love doing our work. We 
do a lot of workshops where they come and they learn how to do it themselves. Now we're seeing more and more bigger news organizations adopting these kind of open source investigation methods, like the New York Times has done that to great effect, as has the BBC Africa Eyes team. And there's more and more news organizations that are doing the kind of analysis that we do with kind of videos and that kind of content. And we've seen this a lot actually around the videos coming from Jan 6 and that happening with a lot of big US publications doing that kind of work. So generally, it's been kind of overwhelmingly positive. And now, because we do a lot of collaborative work with different media organizations, we have really good relationships there. And it's kind of like whenever we have a big story, we know straight away there's a whole range of news organizations in different countries we can partner with to kind of bring it to their audience as much as kind of the Balancat audience. Yeah, and it occurred to me, Elliot, that at the early days of the internet, there was enormous excitement about the kind of notion that we would move from specialist professionals being the exclusive ones with access to knowledge and to spreading knowledge into you know the crowd you know where people like Clay Shirky writing books about how it was all going to change and then it never really happened like that it turned out that people wanted to use social media for very different kinds of things and journalism's funding declined but it's weird isn't it that eventually decades after the early optimism you're actually now doing it you actually represent the kind of idealism that people had at the beginning about the possibility of an alliance in your case in the pursuit of truth between professional journalists and thousands of other people generating their own content yeah it's an interesting time for i think the online world because on one side we do have kind of the work of Bellingcat and this growing open source investigation movement that's very much evidence-based and you know is focused on an accurate analysis. On the other hand, you have kind of growing communities around kind of conspiracy theories. So I think most famously at the moment is QAnon, but even looking at other kind of more bizarre movements like the Flat Earth movements, that, I mean, not saying that QAnon isn't bizarre, but like the Flat Earth movement, that's having a huge renaissance because the internet is great at bringing together like-minded people. It's also really great at effectively radicalizing people who are prone to kind of believing in conspiracy theories. And I think that's, so you kind of have the kind of counterfactual community, which I write about in my book as, you know, these kind of media and information ecosystems that kind of exist on the internet and then become completely detached from mainstream kind of thought, basically, and seeing themselves in opposition to that. Plus, you also have now the kind of work of open source investigators that is very much evidence-based and about analyzing material, creating this other community. And that's one of the values of your book, by the way, is that for people who want to have some basis for being able to distinguish between reliable information online and conspiracy theories, your book gives some you know, useful tips for the kinds of things you might look at. I want to come back to that question of what you call the counterfactual community in a moment, Elliot. But can we, can we turn to another case, which is the case of the Skripals, the attempted poisoning in Salisbury by two Russians who initially claimed, I think their names were Alexander Petrov and Ruslan Bosharov, but you were to find out that that's not who they were at all. Now, again, there is this element of peeling back the layers of the onion, starting by finding out who these people are, connecting them again to the hierarchy, and eventually discovering a kind of germ warfare lab in Russia. The thing about that story, and I I don't want to spoil it for people, I really encourage you listeners to get hold of this book. It's absolutely compelling. But something that hit me about that story was how you relied on the fact that Russia is really the kind of wild badlands when it comes to data, isn't it? You can get hold of any data you want in Russia, so it seems. 
Russia is one of the most open societies in the world. It just doesn't mean to be. It, <laughs> because the Russian government loves gathering data about its citizens, it has all kinds of information. But also because Russia is incredibly corrupt bureaucracy, you can easily find people selling this kind of information online. There's a very vibrant kind of black market for this information. And we were working on the identifying the scripple suspects. And we normally only use open source material. But it became very clear that we couldn't find a lot about them through open sources, but some of the information that had been shared already from both official sources and other journalists who had kind of found, like, for example, the flight manifest with all the passengers and their passports was enough information that if we could get access to certain documents and databases, we could find out a lot more about these people. We already had, for example a lot of leaked databases that have been published online and kind of sold at Russian car boot sales for many years of car registrations, company registrations, all that kind of data. And we were already finding kind of interesting results from searching for the fake identities. And these people just appeared from nowhere several years earlier. And that was incredibly suspicious. And we were able also to then start to get these documents about their registration of these passports, these kind of domestic passports they have in Russia. And when we got those documents, they had not only the photographs of these people confirming the identities were the same, but also they were covered in like marks and stamps that showed that they were working for the Russian security services. And that kind of gave us a way in to then completely expose their operations, including getting phone records, detailed phone records, which included all the cell phone towers they connected to with their coordinates that allowed us to track some of the people who'd been working on this assassination. So when I was reading this part of the book, I had in mind a very recent guest we had on Bridges, who's Carissa Velez, who wrote a very good book called Privacy is Power. Now, you know, Carissa's argument is that privacy has been massively eroded by the internet, and she would like to see much more stringent controls on data. She'd like to see much more intensive cybersecurity measures. She'd like to see data automatically deleted. One of the things that you talk about at the end of the book is the importance of data archives holding on to this data. So, you know, for example, if we ever do get a, a democratic and honest regime in Russia, they might be able to prosecute some of the people who did terrible things in the name of the Russian state. Where do you stand then in this debate about privacy. I mean, I guess in some ways you appreciate Carissa's argument when it comes to the way in which, I don't know, Facebook or Google or whatever use our data, but actually you rely, don't you, on the promiscuity of data to do your work? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of the paradox of kind of the work we do. I mean, we want people to be, you know, have their data secure, not, you know, not to be you know, attacked by state actors or, you know, have their data used for influencing elections. But also, we kind of want access to that data ourselves, because it allows us to kind of expose all the bad guys. But it's kind of like people were asking me, you know, when we've kind of been revealed to be getting all this data from Russia, aren't you worried that the Russians all kind of shut down these sources? And in one respect, yeah, it would be bad for our investigative work. But on the other side, it would mean, you know, hundreds of millions of Russians no longer have all their personal data exposed to the entire world and to whoever wants to buy it. And it would probably cut down on a lot of fraud and other illegal activity targeting, you know, Russian citizens. So in a sense, that would be a good thing. It's like when Facebook, they had a fantastic tool called Graph Search that allowed you to do very advanced searches on very granular data about Facebook users. And it was fantastic for finding kind of hidden profiles or stuff that was generally very difficult to discover extremely useful in our investigations, but also extremely useful for the Russian Federation and Cambridge Analytica to you know, do influence campaigns. So 
although that was kind of shut down by Facebook because of that, and it was a you know a disadvantage to us, we could see more broadly that it was probably better for society that they actually did that. I'm always in kind of two minds about it, but it would be nice to think that we could get all the stuff we wanted and also have everyone protected, but you know that can't happen in the same universe. I think that one thing you'd probably certainly agree with Carissa about is that a lot of cybersecurity is pretty low grade and that we should all be pretty careful about who it is we give our data to, even when they give us assurances that it's safe. And your work, I think, demonstrates that a lot of organizations that claim to be looking after your data very carefully might not be doing so in quite the way they say. Let's move on to a third case, which is this problem of the counterfactual community. And and these are dangers that are, are growing, not just because there are lots of conspiracy theorists out there, but also the dangers of things like deep fakes. Now, I had Chloe Hedger-Mitheo on Bridges a few weeks ago talking about her fantastic series about the White Helmets and the discovery they had of the use of chemical weapons in Syria. It led, by the way, to some charming people on my Twitter timeline. I'm sure you kind of know the kind of person I'm talking about. So tell me about this dimension of your work, Elliot, and the role that you have in trying to deal with organized counterfactual and conspiracy thinking. I mean, it's often an issue that I think is misunderstood by a lot of people because you have such a focus when it comes to disinformation and misinformation on what external actors are doing to our society and communities. And it's often seen as Russia is making stuff up and then people are believing it. But really, a lot of this information is coming from kind of organic communities that have grown online around certain topics. And usually it's made up of people who have a distrust of authority, but that authority can be on a range of different subjects. So For example, you have a kind of alternative health community, and often those are made up of people who've had a bad experience with doctors or the health system. You have as well the kind of anti-white helmets community. And there you have a lot of people who I think when you see them refer to certain events that I think were quite significant in their lives, the 2003 invasion of Iraq, the dodgy dossier, that was something that's you know, they see the world through that lens now. So when there's a conflict in Syria, they see that through the lens of what happened in 2003. And therefore, it must be Western governments trying to overthrow Syria for oil or something. And a lot of those people also, they see, they're often very pro-Palestinian, and they see the mainstream media having betrayed, you know, the Palestinian people by not really reporting what was happening when Israel was attacking and, you know, doing various war crimes and, you know, that kind of thing. So they have a real distrust of kind of mainstream authority, be it the media or government or, you know, anything that basically is not saying that the conflict in Syria is basically a huge kind of conspiracy about Assad. And what happens with these online communities is they get more and more extreme as time goes on, because in a way, social media online platforms are extremely good filtering systems to make you basically radicalized. So you might start off saying, you know, the 2003 invasion of Iraq was, you know, based off false information, which is a reasonable position. But then you start reading blogs that are, you know, people who agree with that, but they also start telling you that actually the White Helmets are working with Al-Qaeda. And they'll show you the same few pictures of, you know, White Helmets people, you know, next to, you know, maybe terrorist looking people. So it starts becoming quite a convincing narrative. But it's also quite a simplified and narrow kind of understanding of the situation in Syria. But that doesn't actually really matter to them because they've kind of convinced themselves that they're right and that they're actually the truth seekers and those people who did the you know invasion of Iraq are the evil liars and those people actually anyone who thinks Assad is a bad person and does chemical weapons attacks and this is true for a whole range of different communities it's not just about one particular kind of community but communities who you know 
I've mentioned before who think the earth is flat, you know, or who might think that bleach is a good medicine for a whole range of different illnesses, or that coronavirus is fake. There, I think the mechanisms behind that that causes them to kind of become more radicalized are often very similar. And there's always in my experience, this distrust of mainstream authority. So they create these alternative media ecosystems, they become part of them, they're drawn into them, and they get deeper and deeper into them until they become increasingly detached from kind of the real world social circles. Because if you know someone who's telling you every day that QAnon is real, then you're going to think that is a crazy person I'm going to talk to. So those people become more and more drawn into the online communities that reinforce their beliefs until they're eventually completely engulfed in this counterfactual community and detached from reality. And I think this is a real danger for our kind of social fabric that this isn't being addressed or even really understood by the people who have to kind of deal with these issues. Yeah, very powerful. And I think there are a couple of things which people really need to bear in mind when they look at these kinds of debates and and maybe shrug their shoulders and go, well, it's so difficult to know who's telling the truth. You know, the first is that if you go to the Bellingcat website, if you read your book, what you'll see is the incredibly careful way in which you document where your evidence comes from. So that, it, you know, people don't have to just believe what Elliot Higgins says or what Bellingcat says. You show the working out so that people can delve into it themselves and satisfy themselves. And that's what's different between your material and a lot of the stuff that's put out by the counterfactual community, which as you say, the second you delve into it, you'll see that it's not real or it's the same photograph that's been used hundreds and hundreds of times. And the other point I think to bear in mind is that some of the people who are generating information that you use are heroic individuals. They are people in incredibly dangerous circumstances, like the person that you work with a lot who's based in Moscow. So it's all very well for people to sit in their armchairs having conspiracy theories. But in so doing, they are making life harder for people who are really putting their lives on the line to get to the truth, aren't they, Elliot? Yeah, and we see this, you know, with the people on the ground in Syria who are taking real risks to kind of film what's happening. The people we work with in Russia who, you know, they could be thrown in jail and, you know, killed at any point. And we've kind of discovered, you know, who was behind the Navalny poisoning, this kind of FSB team. And you would be shocked to think that a big political figure could be targeted with a poisoning but it's clear from our research he's been targeted more than once by this kind of poisoning so those people we work with in russia are under real risk i mean even i've had regular checkups from the counter-terrorism police to make sure that you know i'm kind of feeling safe and happy and other colleagues of mine have also you know frequently contacted by the police to make sure that they're kind of safe and having kind of threat assessments against them all the time because you know we are dealing with governments, state actors, and, you know, basically conspiracy theorists online, who some of which might be a threat to what we're doing. And I think it's quite easy to sit at home and just say, oh, well, this none of this is true. And, you know, I'm not going to bother reading this. But, you know, we do it with a certain amount of risk involved. I mean, even today, I've seen two Russian diplomats claiming that Balinkat is paid for and working for the CIA. So, you know, there's these constant narratives being pushed not only by conspiracy theorists, but by, you know, senior Russian diplomats and figures. And people believe that because some people see them as figures of authority that should be believed. So what's your view of the future? Are you optimistic or pessimistic? I guess the things that worry me are firstly, the points that you make towards the end of the book about the fact that the counterfactual communities, the state actors who want to spread lies and disinformation are going to have better and better technology at their disposal it's going to become harder and harder for lay people to be able to distinguish and the other concern i have is simply a kind of cynicism about accountability i mean i you're dealing with 
life and death situations, war situations, but just in the more prosaic context of Britain, you know, in my lifetime, I remember when I was uh, studying politics in the 1970s, we were told that ministers would resign if an official in their department had done something wrong, even if they themselves hadn't even known about it. And now we get to a situation where cabinet ministers can be accused of really pretty terrible things, bullying or lying, and they just kind of get away with it. They just carry on. That's a pretty pessimistic view. Can you give us some grounds for optimism, Elliot? Well, I mean, one example is there was a video that was published online a couple of years ago and shared on Twitter, and it was a horrific video, and it showed two women, two children, somewhere it appeared to be in Africa, being led down the road by some soldiers and then executed on the roadside. And it was all caught on camera. We started looking into this with a group from Amnesty and the BBC and some people on social media who just really engaged in kind of open source investigation. And initially, the Cameroonian government, when this became known about, gave a press conference where the video was shown with fake news written underneath it. They were saying, these aren't Cameroonian soldiers. It's not Cameroonian weapons. It's not Cameroonian uniforms. And within about a year, all those soldiers were put on trial and convicted because of the work that we were doing with this kind of coalition of open source investigators. And that had real world impact of a group of people just coming together and working on something. With the case of Syria, accountability seems far away. And when you've got kind of Russia protecting you at the UN Security Council, you can get away with quite a lot. But I think it's a lot better to try and do something and maybe something happens and maybe it doesn't than just not bother at all. And I think as well, you have to be very proactive about being part of a society that you want to be better. You can't just assume the trajectory of history as things getting kind of better, more liberal, more truthful because the internet is making the trajectory of history kind of go downwards quite significantly if you just let it do what it does, which is effectively let people become more and more radicalized. So I think there's a positive hope for the future, but we need to all participate in that rather than just hope it happens to us. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me, Elliot, you've been part of creating a new public service in terms of open source, fact-checking, pursuing people who've done bad things, ensuring that they don't feel they can get away with it. Look, in the book, it's not all about you at all. And and that's one of the strengths of the book, because in a way, you could write it in very personal terms because of this amazing journey you've been on. Just, just tell me briefly, I mean, what has it kind of meant for your life in 10 years? I guess, what, 10 years ago, you were in that rather dull office job, and here you are running a global organisation. What has it kind of meant for you personally? I mean, it has quite a positive effect on me, just being able to go from that to where I am now. But I mean, 10 years ago, when I first started doing this, I used to have really terrible anxiety. And that first event where I was asked to speak on stage for 10 minutes, I was so stressed out about that. you know, real rumbly tummy. And I just honestly can't remember any moment I was on stage because I was so focused on being able to say the words and getting them out of my mouth. And it was just such a transformation that now I'm kind of doing a lot of public events and speaking, or at least I was before kind of coronavirus, but also having kind of formed this organization. And one thing I really love about it is that we're not, it's not just about me and Bellingcat. It's about a whole community that's kind of grown, that Bellingcat is part of and plays a big role in. But For me, it's always about taking what I've done myself and kind of giving it to other people and letting other people learn how to do it and build their own communities. It's not all about making everything about Bellingcat. And often when you see these organizations appear that do these kind of big things, 
it's always about one person in that organization and just about that organization rather than truly building a community that is inclusive for everyone who wants to make a positive change. It's really, you know, with a lot of them, it's about the person at the top, you know, being the king of the community and everyone kind of being underneath that. I would be very glad if there were lots of Bellingcats and Elliot Higgins out there doing research in lots of different areas, because I think it would be a net positive for society, basically. And I hope there will be more people who kind of read the book and are inspired to do this same kind of work. No, absolutely. I was going to say that. You've said it for me, which is, you know, if you are an internet enthusiast or if you're young, I read the book and I thought if I was in my 20s, I would have wanted to be part of this community. It's such amazing work you do. So, you know, it's it's a fantastic story. Elliot, it's been a privilege to speak to you, but I have to end with the question which has been nagging away at our listeners throughout the whole of this conversation. Why Bellingcat? So when I first was thinking of the idea of having this new website, I was coming up with really terrible ideas. I, as good a researcher I am, I am not a creative person in the sense of coming up with good ideas. So I was thinking, oh, what about the opensource.com? And, you know, really lame ideas like that. So I called up a friend of mine, Peter Dukes, who I, I thought he's a you know a writer, so he probably has some good ideas. And he said, do you know Belling the Cat? And I said I didn't. And it was a fable about this group of mice who are very afraid of a large cat, a ferocious cat. So they come up with the idea of putting a bell around its neck, but no one actually has a plan of how to do it. So I quite like that because belling the cat, you know, is kind of what I was trying to do and what I wanted to teach other people to do was teaching the mice. So I looked at bellingthecat.com and it was like domain part for like $4,000. And I thought, well, that's not going to work. So I took out the the had bellingcat.com and that was $40 and I thought I'd use that and that's kind of where the name came from. Well it's a name that everybody ought to know and it's a story that everybody ought to know. Elliot Higgins thanks so much for joining us. That's great thanks very much. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future but we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast please tell someone about it and we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith. <laughs>